Hello and welcome to the Third Sector Podcast. I'm Rebecca Cooney, Senior Features and Analysis Writer. And I'm Andy Ricketts, News Editor of Third Sector, the UK's leading publication for the voluntary and not-for-profit sector. Each week we sit down for a quick-fire conversation about interesting or unusual goings-on in the charity world. And this week we're discussing our biennial charity pay study and chatting to Christiana Rickson, Head of Policy at the Charity Leaders Body, Akivo, about some of the issues it has thrown up. And, as always, we'll be unwrapping our coronavirus care package of good news stories. But first, Andy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. And I have a question for you. Uh, What would you do with £4.6 million a year? (laughs) That's a lot of money. What you mean, aside from give most of it away to charities and other good causes? Yes, of course. Um, Well, I guess that... Most of the people who know me would know that I te- my interests tend to uh, go towards the, the geekier end of the spectrum, shall we say. <laughs> uh, so it's possible that one thing, if I had an, un- uh, well, not an unlimited, but a very large sum of money, I would be tempted to buy a Stormtrooper costume from the Star Wars film series. I kind of grown up always loving Star Wars. And actually there is a... We our offices are in Twickenham and just the other end of Twickenham there is a a store where the guy who made the original Stormtrooper costumes for uh, George Lucas back in the 1970s actually sells these Stormtrooper costumes and they like I think they go for like well I mean clearly I've never looked into it but it just so happens that I think they sell for about 1500 quid. <laughs> oh, okay just just ballpark estimation. Yeah. Just total just plucking that out of the air. Um, but yeah, I've always thought that if if you had money to burn on something totally frivolous, then I think a, a Star Wars stormtrooper costume would be pretty amazing. And actually, there's a, a bunch of guys who do real hardcore kind of stormtrooper dressing up for charity. There's like a uh, this thing called the five, 501st Squadron, which is a, a group of people who obviously love Star Wars and they, they do dressing up in their costumes and then they go and appear at charity events and uh-huh. that kind of stuff. So, so it would, in fact, be an investment in charity fundraising is what we're obviously. saying. Yeah, 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 obviously. Yeah, of course. It wouldn't satisfy any of my personal needs no. in any way. Um, what about you? Um, so I think I would, yes, obviously, uh, yeah, the money to charity because of course, of course, definitely buy a horse. That's, ah. that's just, yeah, that would be my thing. I, my thing I've always thought is if I, if I were kind of, you know, in the millionaire level of rich, I think I would default to cocktails on a night out. <laughs> like I like beer and wine and stuff, but like, you know, that the cocktails are expensive, but I feel like my life would just be that much, that much better if I could just have, you know. Nice fruit juices with alcohol in all the time. And then the other thing I was thinking is get a house with room for a library. Mm. Um, And in my head, it's sort of somewhere between the one in Buffy the Vampire Slayer and the one in Beauty and the Beast. (laughs) Um, I don't know if any of the either of these two cultural references, like if if, if maybe that's just a specific to my age group, but those somewhere somewhere in the middle there. basically lots of stairs lots of big bookshelves lots of sort of scrolly banisters and things that would be my uh... excellent you, you know you can accommodate uh the, the the equivalent number of books probably in your in your tablet just by uh, using some kind of digital reader i feel you're missing the point here andy <laughs> quite possibly yeah so as you'll know, the reason I'm asking this is because 4.6 million uh, was the amount of money bought in by the highest earner in our charity pay study this year. 
Every two years since 2013, Third Sector has compiled a list of the highest salaries paid by the biggest UK charities. The study has documented gradual growth in the largest pay packages earned by the voluntary sector's highest paid individuals. So Andy, you compiled the latest study, which is available in the current issue of Third Sector magazine. What did you find? Well, the first thing we have to do is put a huge caveat on the results because the study was compiled using information from the most recent sets of charity accounts. And as you know, they tend to lag behind a little bit because of filing deadlines and that kind of stuff. So the most recent data relates to the financial year ending in March 2020. And of course, uh, the big thing that's happened since then is it was is the COVID day. So it's all pre-pandemic. This is all from the before times. And of course, a lot of chief executives and senior staff members took temporary pay cuts at various points last year. Um, So the picture may now look a little bit different. But with that caveat out of the way, what did we see in this year's study? Well, the top of the list is typically dominated not by household name charities, but by philanthropic foundations, charitable private hospitals, arts bodies and educational establishments. And the one thing those organisations have in common is that they do relatively little public fundraising. And this year was no exception, with the grant maker, the Wellcome Trust, again topping the list by an extremely large margin. The highest paid person there, Peter Pereira Gray, chief executive of the Charities Investments Division, received a package including salary, bonus, long-term incentive plan and allowances totalling more than £4.6 million. That is a heck of a lot of money. And notably, that's not the figure that's getting paid to the overall leader of the organisation. When we have these conversations, normally we sort of default to thinking about the chief executive of the organisation, but that's that's not what Peter Pereira Gray does. Yeah, well, I mean, the Wellcome Trust is a bit of an outlier in that, in that it employs its own in-house investment team to manage its enormous portfolio, which I think totals about £30 billion in value, which it says is more cost effective and produces better results than if it was outsourced. The team includes seven people who received total salary packages worth at least one and a quarter million pounds over the course of 2019-20, all of which outstripped the person in second place on Third Sector's latest top 100. Welcome says remuneration for this team is directly linked to the long term performance of its investments. And it looks like that's done pretty well recently. The charity's investments grew by more than three billion pounds during the course of the year, despite the negative effects of the coronavirus pandemic on the global financial markets. And the charity says that over the past decade, investment returns have averaged just under 10 percent a year in real terms, enabling its annual charitable spend to approximately double. Okay, so that makes sense that these staff members are getting fairly big pay packets. So of all the people who are highest paid at their charity, who was it that came in second? So that was Steve Gray, Chief Executive of Nuffield Health. He received a year-on-year increase to his financial package of about £90,000 to between 930000 and 940000 Nuffield Health runs hospitals, wellbeing services and fitness centres and said it agreed to pay a bonus to Gray last year if he met, quotes, rigorously defined organisation targets, a standard practice across organisations and businesses of our size and complexity. And then in third place, we've got Sir Antonio Papano, the music director at the Royal Opera House. He has a base salary of £115,000 and then got more than £600,000 of separately contracted fees for conducting and directing as required, bringing his total pay up to £839,000 plus. 
Cool. So a lot of money sloshing around in our top three, but also quite a big disparity, actually, or kind of big drop, particularly between first and second. Mm. So how do the overall findings, obviously, we don't just look at the top earners, but how do, how do these findings compare to last year? Well, among charities that have major fundraising activities, which represents almost half of the charities in our top 100, salaries are generally lower than in other categories and have grown at a slower rate. That does make sense, as these charities are more likely to have to worry about public opinion. Our data shows that the mean pay among these charities was £194,000, just £1,000 higher than the figure in the study conducted in 2019 and £8,000 higher than in 2017. By contrast, the median of the highest salaries paid by the grant-making foundations that made up the list was up by £100,000 compared with two years ago to 285000 Right. So we're seeing kind of a big rise in the grant making salaries and less so much in these kind of public fundraising charities. And and yeah, this this question of public opinion is an important one. Like there, there is this discomfort among the general public around charity pay. And if you ask anyone on the street, I think they're very likely to tell you that charity chief executives get paid too much. And one thing I've always thought is really telling. Um, so we changed how we measure our audience interaction on our website in the last couple of years. But in the first few years I was at Third Sector, what we used to see time and time again was whenever there was a scandal about charities in the tabloid papers, and it didn't really matter what the scandal was about, whether it's about fundraising, something else, the most recent charity pay study would suddenly become one of the most read things on our website, like like clockwork, um, automatically. And I just, I just think it's really indicative of how people view this. It's just an issue that is always kind of bubbling away there, sort of lurking in the background. And the minute people are annoyed by a charity, it kind of comes out as a, oh, and another thing, they pay people too much as well. But yeah, you've been doing this salary study for a number of years now. So I wanted to ask you, what's the kind of most striking thing about it for you? Well, I think the most interesting thing about it is the fact that a number of household name charities that are among the largest by annual income don't pay their highest earners enough to feature in the top 100. That's one of the things that you've just been talking about when it comes to public opinion. But charities like Oxfam GB, Save the Children UK and Sight Savers, all of which are in the top 20 in the UK in terms of annual income, pay their leaders comparatively far less when set against the size of the organisation they are managing. And these are the ones that tend to be those that get the most flack from the public for being overpaid when actually salary levels at these organisations are relatively restrained particularly when you consider that the median pay of the FTSE 100 chief executives was £3.6 million in 2019, according to the think tank, the High Pay Centre. But organisations like Oxfam weren't paid, weren't paying their top people enough to get into our top 100. Mm. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I do, there is this argument that if you want people to lead these multi-million pound organisations, you're you're going to have to pay them something commensurate with what they could get in the private sector. And actually, you know, they're not even doing that. And, and as you say, still attracting that flack. Um, so to find out more about this issue, we spoke to Christiana Rickson, head of policy at Akivo. We started out by asking her what her response was to our study's findings. So I think the obviously the issue of executive pay in charities is is clearly of interest to the public and they want to know how donations and money is being spent that is being received by charities. I think I always have to start by cautioning that, you know, the largest couple of hundred charities by income, and I know that it doesn't cross over exactly with this study, so the la- but the largest couple of hundreds 
charities by income represent you know less than one percent of registered charities in England and Wales so the research is not representative of the breadth of the sector where you're much more likely to find you know charities run by volunteers than those that have any paid staff at all um and you know and, and a plug for our own research so that when you do look at CEO salary, then the average salary we found in 2020 was just under 56k. But I think you know, looking at at this research like specifically, I think it was really interesting that the charities that were quoted about how they reached decisions on executive pay did give quite specific answers about how they got to those decisions. So you know, Welcome Trust talked about linking pay to return on investments, which is relatively rare in the charity sector the royal opera house talked about having a base salary and then having additional fees for kind of directorship responsibilities which again is a really kind of unusual operating model so it shows how difficult it is to say charity pay um when we're talking about such wildly different organizations it's very different to create a blanket rule at that point yeah i mean i think you know i don't think it would be possible to do so and um, because charities operate, they have different operating models, they're uh, different sizes, different purposes, different groups of people that they're serving. Uh, it's about looking at all of those things. And charity pay, uh, particularly that of charity chief executives, is one of the most consistently contentious issues across the voluntary sector. What do you think is behind that feeling? I think there are probably quite a few, but I, I try and pick up on two maybe i think one is that people like so many people still don't know that charities pay any staff at all and i you know i include myself in that before i worked for charity i think it was in my mid-20s and i started volunteering for charity i suddenly realized that some of the people in the organization were paid i thought oh i'd quite like to do that uh and then my parents were how are you going to pay rent and i said no no they, they, they'll pay me um so i think if your first knowledge that charities pay staff at all is a headline article in a press which is talking about salaries of over 150k that disconnect would really understandably be really jarring to move from one place to another so quickly um and whenever you have like a a disconnect like that it can create strong reactions and emotions so i completely understand why some people get you know really shocked about that um i think the other thing that's really important to kind of cover it's about the language that we use to talk about executive pay. Um, you know, it's similar to the discussions about people talk about overheads, you know, office rent, uh, utility bills, and how that's apparently, you know, in some people's eyes, different to frontline charity work. But obviously, that's I, you know, I would say that's a false equivalent. You know, you can't run a hospice without heating and lighting. You know, you can't research a cure for cancer without scientific equipment. And you can't run a complex organisation that meets all of its regulatory requirements, supports its staff and is financially stable without someone leading the organisation. So salaries of all staff is charity work. Does the sector need to do more to address this this criticism around um, charity pay head on, either by making changes and, and reducing the levels of charity pay in, in some circumstances or by kind of, you know, seeking to sort of have that argument properly and make the argument and educate the public around some of these issues, as you say, that there is a, a gap in people's knowledge there? I certainly would ed- enter into any discussion kind of from a frame of I think we need to educate the public like that because I think when you when you say to somebody I'm going to educate you I'm going to tell you how it is rarely do you ever (laughs) reach a point where somebody changes their mind (laughs) but I think you know 
it's important to enter into those conversations with a real willingness to kind of listen to their point of view and understand it with kind of empathy. And I think you know, that there are individuals and organisations who are doing that. So obviously, I would say Akivo, but NCVO and the Chartered Institute of Fundraising, I know have all had discussions with their members about how to talk, how to engage with people about questions about CEO pay. You've also seen people, you know, I know this was a number of years ago, but like Jan Tregellis, when she was CEO of Mencap, wrote in The Guardian about um, executive pay. Uh, Kate Lee has talked about it in response to criticism when she was CEO of Mighton's Hospice. And I think, again, when she was at Click Sergeant. So I don't think it would be right to say that there isn't a, like a, an engaged debate going on already. It's definitely something I think we need to feel more confident. More people need to feel more confident entering into that space. And I think there's a role for us as the Akibo as membership bodies about how we help people do that. And I think there's also, you know, something for the Charity Commission and other actors who are perceived to be more neutral to talk about the realities of pay in a more nuanced way. So members of the public might not always understand CEO pay. And I can I can understand that. But I think there's not anyone at the Charity Commission who would say that charity shouldn't employ staff at all. And so them having that discussion and saying, you know, this is this is why CEOs or other members of staff are paid. This is how the decision is reached. This is what we look for as a regulator. I think those interventions would be really useful. Because I suppose they can't be seen to be self-interested, can they? The see, the, the senior leaders, you mean? You are the charity commission. Like the, the, if, if senior leaders come out in the national papers and say, you know, actually, this is why we should be getting paid, people are probably going to see that as self-interested. Whereas I suppose if the charity commission comes and does it, like you're saying, it's a more neutral party. Yeah, and I think it matters how the Charity Commission does it, because I think, you know, obviously uh, there's there was talk a, a little while ago about the Charity Commission releasing a report on CEO pay. And though I, I don't think anyone was saying we should never talk about that or let's hide those figures or don't put it out. I think there's concern, though, about how it's going to be framed, because... We know that people have questions about CEO pay. I, mm. I welcome those conversations. I don't think we're going to move forward in this debate until we have those conversations. Um, but what we need to know is that it's going to come from a place of nuance and it's going mm. to come from a place of kind of talking about the complexity of the situation. And I think that speaks to a lot of issues in the charity sector where we just need to start to really embrace that complexity and really embrace that challenge in a in a kind of, open and transparent and um, sometimes what will feel uncomfortable way. I mean, on that issue of communicating, Christiana, I mean, our, our survey found that about two thirds of the top 100 charities in the study didn't identify their highest earner in their annual accounts that we looked at. This is kind of against what the NCVO recommended a few years ago when they did their commission into charity pay. What needs to happen to increase transparency on this issue, do you think? Again, I, I would say it depends on what your definition of, of transparency is, what transparency means to you. So once you're identifying the name of the person and connecting that with their salary, you know, there might be people who feel uncomfortable with, with doing that. I think the most important thing is that when the figure is published, uh, there is a it's accompanied by a statement or an explanation about how the decision is reached, about why they're setting pay there. Um, and if a supporter or a donor or somebody that the charity works with 
wants to discuss it with that charity, then it's really easy for them to get in touch with the charity, to have that conversation, to engage with the right people. So transparency is about data, absolutely. But it's also about a willingness to enter into those kind of conversations that we were just talking about, like a willingness to enter into conversations that are complex and challenging and they where you know that you're you're starting from a position of disagreement rather than a position, you know. So I think transparency isn't just about names and figures. It's about process and understanding and sharing and empathising as, as well. Yeah, that makes sense. And obviously the picture has been a bit different in recent months as a result of coronavirus. We've had um, lots of um, people at senior levels and, and sort of lower down levels in charities taking um, sort of pay cuts, drops in pay. Do you think the pandemic is likely to have any kind of long-term effect on charity pay? I think... It's too early to tell. Sorry, that was not a... <laughs> it's getting dancing around the question. Um, we've just finished collecting data for the 2021 Akibo Pay Inequalities Survey, and that will be out in September. And for the first time, we've included a specific question around whether people have taken a pay cut in the last 12 months, and if so, whether that's a temporary or permanent thing. So hopefully we'll get some indication at that point um about what the longer term picture will look like yeah because i do feel like that there's you know either people will take permanent pay cuts or like i could see a scenario hypothetically where you know it's been a very very stressful year actually we might see charity leaders saying maybe maybe i want more money if i'm going to engage with that i don't know that's a complete speculation um i don't know if you have any thoughts about that it has been a tough year and again it's going to get it's going to be so different to different charities Mm. and and i think each charity is now going to be looking at reflecting on the last year and thinking about what that meant for them but also what it means going forward i know a lot of charities are struggling at the moment to plan long term because of you know funding pots mm. having um needing to be spent by march 31st if it was government funding or you know a lot of trusts and foundations which have been great at redirecting funds to frontline services but that having a shorter term kind of expenditure on it as well so i think we need to kind of essentially wait and see what the longer term financial picture looks like um we should start coming out in the next few months great well thank you very much for joining us christiana it's been a really interesting chat thank you very much for having me Each week, we're bringing you a mini coronavirus care package. Good news stories we've spotted in the sector. Uh, This week, what have you got for us, Andy? Well, as we record, the thing that's just been happening over the last weekend was the Sir Captain Tom 100 fundraising challenge that was inspired by uh, Captain Tom Moore's fundraising exploits from last year. And they have been encouraging everybody to do a fundraising challenge over the bank holiday weekend relating to the number 100 and there's been some extraordinary things that people have done over the uh, the course of the last few days to run to raise funds for charity not least nathan franklin stokes who is obviously a keen golfer and he did a hundred holes in a day to raise uh, about two thousand pounds for the challenge he started at 5 40 in the morning and finished his 100 holes 13 hours later so well done to nathan for doing that also the firefighters at the lincoln north fire station 
each member of the crew climbed a vertical kilometer on ladders that they set up at their fire station to raise funds for the firefighters charity and St Barnabas hospice. So were they going up and then down the ladders yeah. or like was it one really tall ladder? I assume it wasn't one really tall ladder. Like It wasn't a kilometer tall ladder. No. <laughs> Ruining my dreams. <laughs> They went up and down, but um, but yeah, I'm guessing that say what a ladder must be like fifty meters at most, isn't it? Yeah. It's not even going to be higher than that. So they must have had to do it quite a lot of times. So uh, the well done to the firefighters there. And then we should also have a mention to the Formula One driver Nicholas Latifi, who drives for the Williams Formula One team, and they did 100 pit stops over the course of the weekend to uh, to raise money. I don't know if that means they used 100 new sets of tyres. That probably would have been pretty expensive if they did that. Um, but well done to them. They were raising money for the Spinal Injuries Association. What have you been, what have you spotted, Rebecca, in recent days? Uh, so I spotted a story and I saw the initial headline and I was like, hmm. So it said, uh, Rajinder Singh is skipping the marathon. And I was like... <laughs> Yes, I too am taking the principled stand <laughs> of not running the marathon this year and letting somebody else have my slot. That's uh, that's, a, that's a stand I'm taking. Turns out, no, he's he's not. That's not what he's doing at all. Um, uh, I'm, I'm alone there. Um, so uh, Rajinder Singh is uh, 75 years old and he's known as the skipping Sikh. And yeah, he does fundraising and awareness raising activities with a skipping rope. Um, and sort of different challenges. And so he, at 75 years old, has got a place on the London Marathon in October. And uh, he's going to be skipping for Mencap. So far, he has raised £1,200 of his £5,000 target. And uh, yeah, it just, it looks like a very fun and challenging way to do the marathon. And also, yeah, in terms of, uh, I don't know that I want to be the person running behind him. But uh, yeah, it looks like it's going to be, yeah, an impressive feat. That is pretty good. If you had to do the marathon in an unusual way, how would you do it? Would you going back to our previous conversation, maybe on a horse? I'm not sure that's allowed, but yes, if I could do that, that that would work for me. Um, yes, uh, maybe maybe on a pantomime horse, I get somebody else to carry me. I guess. I'm guessing lots of people will have done it in a stormtrooper costume. Probably, probably. But, you know, if somebody wants to sponsor me to get a stormtrooper costume to uh, to do it at some stage then hey I'd be up for that and he is available for that yes (laughs) brilliant so best of luck to Rajinder Singh Um, and yeah that's all from us this week Uh, we'll be back with another episode soon so make sure you subscribe to this the Third Sector podcast on your favourite podcast app to be the first to know about it until then I'm Andy Ricketts and I'm Rebecca Cooney and our producer is Lindsay Riley at Rethink Audio we'll see you next week (laughs) 